Could you show us some of the covers? Yeah, sure. Right. This is my personal favourite. This is Agatha Christie's The Secret of Chimneys. Now, this one here, what we see, looks like two cats being married, or certainly before or after the ceremony, with a backdrop of Venice. Uh, it's something you would absolutely no, no sort of connection with the contents of the book itself, you know, the typical Agatha Christie uh, cover. Again, we have another cat theme on Naomi Jacob, Three Men and Jenny. We have a very large sort of hairy cat um, dominating the picture with a, a man smoking a pipe. <laughs> and above the budgie, we have a scene of a um, fireman attending a fire. What we don't see here, which we try and catch the light, is there is quite a large male appendage coming off of the, the lower torso of the budgie. And the layering of the collages allows you to um, almost feel it there, which is quite uh, a little sort of in, in joke, but it is quite sort of almost in silhouette there. They say never judge a book by its cover. I'm like, there's no way you could judge this. Hello, and welcome to Anything But Silent from the British Library. I'm Cleo Laskarin, and in this episode, we've got 1960s drama, we've got roller skates, and we've got a pile of South American cardboard. But what does all of this, alongside cat weddings and collaged appendages, have to do with libraries, you ask? Well, today our stories explore libraries as sites of creative rebellion. Our episode begins in North London as we hark back to the era of the Fab Four to investigate an infamous case of malicious damage. All our time was spent at the library. There's a famous library in Leicester, and it's in the round, and it's called the Port Pie Library because it looks like pork pie. <laughs> right, of course. It had a revolving door. We'd go in, and then the magic would begin. This is Leonie Orton. We met her at her home to discuss memories of her brother Joe. I remember we were all up there and Joe was in the adult section and then he'd come back into the kids' section. And when we got outside the library and we were walking back down the hill to our house, he took out of his pocket a green-bound book and on the front it said Black Beauty, and I love Black Beauty, by Anna Saul, and it said... This is for you, and you don't have to return it. Uh, he'd clearly stolen it. So, um, as Sidney Porrett said, they were a stealer of library books. And I can concur that that, that is, is true. That is true. He was indeed a stealer of library books, yeah. <laughs> Leonie describes her childhood days with Joe with much affection. He was kind to her, and the archetypal heroic older brother that she idolised. But the small misdemeanor of Black Beauty was a precursor of what was to come. I'm Mark Aston. I'm the local history manager for Islington Museum and the local history centre and archive. And today we're in Islington Museum. Joe Wharton is at the same time a very simple character, I believe, but also quite a complex character, two sides to his persona. People know him as a playwright during the 1960s, a part of the sort of burgeoning British playwright scene. Joe, behind the scene, uh, behind doors, if you like, was a playful character, quite lovable, quite promiscuous. His writing sort of reflected that, but also I think there's a complex character there that he grew up in humble surroundings in Leicester, 
at an early age discovered drama as a way of getting out of the sort of working class doldrums, took elocution lessons, joined a local Amdram society, and then at the age of 18 uh, joined RADA up here in London. Horton enjoyed his introduction to the capital, a welcome break from a humble life and a controlling mother who, as Leonie told me, liked a drink. But Joe always stood out. I know that, you know, Joe was an anarchist. Um, you know, in a way, you know, he's, he was angry, very angry at the way society was organised. Mm -hmm. Angry at the, the capitalist system he lived in. Angry that, you know, homosexuality was illegal. But then, on the other hand, he quite liked being the delinquent, in a way. I think he enjoyed, you know, he liked being on the outside. Yeah. While studying at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, Joe Orton met Kenneth Hallowell in 1951, a man seven years his senior, who would go on to have a significant impact. I feel the relationship between Kenneth Halliwell and Joe Orton was a little bit sort of master and apprentice that the education that Orton didn't get as a youngster was to be sort of fulfilled by the older, wiser and more learned Kenneth Halliwell, who went to grammar school, who read the classics and so forth. Halliwell and Orton quickly formed a strong relationship and became lovers. Over the course of the next few years, they studied together, then travelled around the country working in repertory theatre before settling back in Islington, North London. Acting wasn't for them, so they turned their hands to writing. Halliwell bought a small austere flat in Knoll Road in 1959 using family inheritance, which would become their base. There they lived a frugal life, working menial jobs for only a few months a year so that they could concentrate on their writing. A lack of serious work meant Joe and Kenneth had time to amuse themselves, poking fun at the world around them and developing a farcical style that would later become their mark. Orton rejected the humdrum of convention and elitism. He was noted for saying things like, he hoped he would never write anything as bad as the early Shakespeare's. And his distaste for mediocrity played out further in his local libraries. In a nutshell, they would use two local libraries. This is the South Library in Essex Road, which is still with us today, and the Central Library in Holloway Road. As soon as they moved into uh, the area in 1959, they would come into libraries. They would steal library books. They wouldn't take them or check them out. They would put them in their, their bags. I believe Halliwell used an old gas mask bag. They would take the books back to the flat, particularly Essex Road was just round the corner, the, the South Library, where they would uh, start defacing or altering the covers by adding new artwork, new narrative, and a little bit of sort of playful fun. And it was, I guess, a way of bringing themselves uh, sort of closer to each other, this sort of little bit of sort of naughtiness and, as such. Biographies of an obscure acting family called <laughs> The Lunch. And then there would be books on gardening. All these books that he thought, they should have been burnt. They'd have been better used, you know, keeping somebody warm. This wasn't your usual book cover graffiti. Orton and Hallowell painstakingly altered images and collaged the dust jackets, pillaging magazines and colour supplements to find surreal imagery that juxtaposed with the real contents of the books. Once the glue was dry, the pair would return to the libraries to sneak the books back onto the shelves, before hiding in a secluded spot to witness the reactions of the public. It's estimated that they augmented over a hundred books, 
I think it was their own little bit of theatre. And in some cases, they must have had some fantastic reactions because they're pretty sort of near the knuckle. They were quite crude for the time. There were naked men, naked women, sort of put on very plain covers. Mark Aston showed me some of the defaced covers, which have been preserved at Islington Local History Centre. Right. What we have in the collection, uh, what's left of the Orton and Halliwell defaced uh, book jackets, we have 43. This is my personal favourite. This is Agatha Christie's The Secret of Chimneys. Now, what we see is, um, looks like two cats being, uh, uh, being married, or certainly before or after the ceremony, with a backdrop of Venice. Uh, it's something you would absolutely no, no sort of connection with the, the contents of the book itself, you know, the typical Agatha Christie cover. Right, the Queen's favourite, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that's, um, uh, again, not sure what the original cover looked like. I'd imagine it's pretty plain, but what we have instead is two semi-naked men wrestling uh, against the background of what I think is, is a, a Middle Eastern or a Far Eastern a palace. So yeah, the Queen's favourite, that's quite open for interpretation, I think, that one by Phyllis Hambledon. OK, John Osborne, um, slightly earlier contemporary, but a contemporary of Joe Orton, late 50s, early 50s uh, playwright, known for the entertainer predominantly, but uh, we have one here called The World of Paul Slicky, where the original cover shows what looks like a, almost a private detective, but a, a shady-looking character in a raincoat and a hat. However, that's been replaced by Orton and Halliwell uh, with a budgie, uh, which is quite interesting. And above the budgie, we have a scene of a um, fireman attending a fire. Looking at the covers with Mark was incredibly fun. They're very irreverential and quite cheeky. And there's the collected plays of Emlyn Williams. Oh, and have they changed the titles on this one? Uh, the titles now read, Up the Front, Knickers must fall, up the back, he was born grey, Olivia Prude, <laughs> Mr Winifred, oh, um, fucked by Monty. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like quite a collection of plays. Eventually, as you can imagine, library staff got wind of there's something going on, and so there was a concerted effort to see whether they can actually catch the two culprits. Orton and Hallowell's mischief at the library continued for around two and a half years before they were finally foiled. They took it to a higher authority, the town clerk, a guy called Sidney Porritt in the council, who was intent on catching these, quote, two darlings. He went to the police for some uh, advice. So a plan was hatched to sort of uh, tease them out, and which is exactly what they did. In 1962, the pair were prosecuted. They were found guilty on five counts of theft and malicious damage, admitting damage to more than 70 books many of which were found in their flat on Knoll Road. They were fined £262 and, astonishingly, sentenced to six months in prison. I didn't know what he did until after the event right. because my father read it in the Daily Mirror um, where because he was a, a municipal gardener, he saw this headline that said, Gorilla in the Roses. And him thinking that a gorilla had escaped from a zoo or something and got amongst the rose bushes. Now we come to, just turning the page here, perhaps the most famous cover of them all, which is Colin's Guide to Roses. A very plain cover, but what it does show is a very large yellow English rose. And there's nothing so more English or British than the good old classic rose there. 
However, quite simply, what uh, Halliwell and Orton have done here is to stick an, a, a monkey's face to the centre of the rose. And when eventually they came, they were prosecuted and came to trial, this is one of the covers that was used in evidence by the prosecution. You know, how could they defile such an English institution as a rose in such a manner? The point is that, um, of course, they believe, rightly so, that they weren't really sent to prison for defacing library books, only partly. You do not get sent to prison for defacing library books. Yeah. You get sent to prison because the judge thinks that you're homosexual. Right. In prison, the pair were separated, and Hallowell struggled, even attempting suicide. But for Joe Orton, the isolation provided time to focus on his writing. Against the odds, he regarded the period as liberating and creatively inspiring. The experience crystallised his perceptions of a rotten society. Oh, something happened to him in prison. Because he said, the old whore society really lifted up her skirts and the stench was pretty foul. Which, however you interpret it, mm. It had some sort of revelation. And he said, suddenly, I found detachment in my writing. Mm -hmm. And I think he did. And I think that was the first time he was on his own away from Kenneth. Just two years later, Orton was a celebrated playwright. His first success came a year after his release from prison with the BBC radio play, The Ruffian on the Stair. Entertaining Mr. Sloan followed premiering in the New Arts Theatre in 1964, before loot and significant success in the West End, Broadway, and on screen. Orton was on a high. It's amazing that such a career would spiral from a bit of mischief in a library, but sadly it wasn't to last. The divide that started between them in prison manifested in a way that would ultimately become their downfall. Clearly, by 1967, Joe Orton was enjoying a lot of success. Loot had become the Evening Standard Play of the Year. He had just finished writing on the last throws of what the butler saw. But more so, he was commissioned by the Beatles. You know, the Fab Four were the biggest thing on the planet at that during the 1960s. So this was another sort of example where um, Orton's style was in the ascendancy of sort of shooting forward. The relationship, however, with Halliwell was very strained. Halliwell's, uh, he didn't get his writing off. Uh, nothing was published. Uh, I don't know if you know the play Entertaining Mr Sloan, but this is what I think sums Joe up. Sloan, is it going to be OK? Edwell, perhaps. Sloan, I'll be grateful. Ed, will you? Sloan, eternally. Ed, not eternally, boy. Just a few years. What? Oh, it's wonderful. I love that line to bits. Yeah. You know, he doesn't believe, Joe, doesn't believe in commitment. Yeah. Their relationship, physical relationship, and the better-looking, younger... Joe Walton, very promiscuous, lots of sexual encounters with other men. His diaries sort of uh, explain what was going on. Um, so there was a lot coming between them. Kenneth Halliwell's sort of mental illness as well and the fear that uh, they would part. So all these things sort of mixed up and obviously came to a head in August 1967 when uh, Halliwell couldn't take any more and 
bludgeoned uh, Orton to death at the flat in Knoll Road with a hammer, several blows, and then Halliwell took his own life with an overdose of barbiturates. Kenneth destroyed a great talent Mm -hmm. and selfishly destroyed that great talent and took away a dearly beloved brother. And I never say any more than that because that, I think, says everything. That tells you what I feel. Viewing the defaced book covers with Mark and Islington, the acts of malicious damage that had started a career, I couldn't help wonder what Jordan would have thought of his own legacy. How would he feel about the books being back in the collection? As items of cultural significance, on the shelves of history. Well, he would have loved it. He, he knew his worth. He knew he was good. He knew he was yeah. good. Of course he did. And he deserved to know. And he deserved the defaced library book covers being now coveted. This kid made it against all the odds. And I think that should be his legacy. He should inspire people not to give up. He's, he's just saying, this is all okay. What was your problem? The story of Joe Orton, Kenneth Halliwell, and the books of the Islington Public Library. Rebellious mischief or an artistic statement? I think I'll let you decide. Thanks to Leonie Orton Barnett for talking to us, as well as Mark Aston at Islington's local history center and museum. As Mark said to me, the story of Joe Orton could have been a play for the theater itself. I urge you to explore some of his writing if you're not familiar. A good place to start is the Discovering Literature section of the British Library website. You're listening to Anything But Silent. And in our second rebellious act of the episode, we go from rebellion in the book stacks to rebellion on the track. In the 1930s, the U.S. was hit by a new craze, roller skates. And quickly, it seemed as if everyone was on wheels. Skatathons, a new kind of endurance race, took off. Skaters would fly around a banked track, looping their opponents. This wasn't figure skating. This was dog-eat-dog, skate-eat-skate. Sometimes it got ugly. The crowd would wait in anticipation for foul play, a barge here, a shove there. Keeping tabs on this new trend was a man by the name of Leo Seltzer, who, while sitting in a Chicago restaurant sometime in 1935, started to write down all of the dirty tactics on his tablecloth. A new rulebook. And with that, Roller Derby, Skatathon's meaner, cooler, rebellious sister, was born. At the start of a jam, all of the players on in that jam will line up on the track next to the start line. 30 seconds is cold, they're all ready, and then 
the whistle goes and that's the jam on. Having been all calm and everybody being like determined and set in and focused on where their jammer is and where the other all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and uh, the jammers will just pelt it and try and like get up the sides or smash through the middle of the wall and try and not get The knocked. first person who gets through becomes lead jammer and they're then in control so they can, unless they get off for a penalty, they can call the jam off at any point. And basically they will just, if they are lucky, get straight out through the, out of the pack and try and come back around the track as quickly as they can and then try and basically do the same again. <laughs> um, so that's it. People who are really interested in pubs and things will spend 15 minutes explaining it and being like, yeah, and you get sent off for this and there's contact rules and this, that and the other thing. They're like, right, and where's the ball? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Puma Thurman and I play roller derby for Glasgow Roller Derby and I'm also a doctor. So I picked the name Puma Thurman, I think. So I had a few ideas written down. I can't remember most of them. The only other one I can remember that I had sort of come up with was Violent Beauregard. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's because I, I quite like reading. I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily the first person that people would pick out to play a contact sport from a lineup. And I think I quite, I quite, I like watching films. And I saw an image of Uma Thurman in Kill Bill, and I thought. Ah, that's quite a good sort of persona. And then I quite like cats. And I thought, do you know what? It's a slightly punny name. And the other thing that's important in picking a derby name is something that's easy for people to shout at you. You can just yell Puma at me and I know exactly who I am and <laughs> to answer. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sarah. I play roller derby with Glasgow Roller Derby. I'm on the B team. I've been playing for around three years. I guess part of what drew me to roller derby was the sort of feminist politics of it. The fact that it's like a sport, like unlike pretty much every other sport I can think of, where it's designed for women to play it. I think increasingly like more teams are political in other ways in terms of accessibility and inclusivity and being quite vocal about, you know, how they feel about other issues, and that's it's really nice. It's like what Megan Rapino is to football, I guess, but obviously on a much smaller stage. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jenny Noble, and I'm the museum curator here at Glasgow Women's Library which houses the National Museum of Roller Derby Collection. Yep, I have a rebellious streak in me. I'm a feminist for a start, and I am very against Trident, so I do protest regularly at Faslane Nuclear Base. There's plenty of things to be rebellious about in this society. <laughs> GWL is the only accredited museum in the UK solely dedicated to women's history, believe it or not. And as far as I'm aware, there are no other collections of roller derby material that have been archived in the country. So it seems like a natural home for such a, a sort of feminist grassroots sport to be here at the library in Glasgow. Glasgow Women's Library was created by a collective of artists in 1987 called Women in Profile a group of activists who wanted to bring women's contribution to Glasgow's history and culture to the forefront. 
They held events, created their own zine, and collected a rich archive of work for and by women. And all of this needed to find a home. The library opened its doors for the first time in September of 1991. So at the library, we've got this really amazing collection, and a lot of it demonstrates the grassroots collectives and organisations that have sprung up across the country and beyond over the years. So just to give you some examples, I've got here some of the feminist publications that we house within the archive collections. We've got the full set of the spare rib um, magazines. We've got Harpies and Quines, which was Scotland's first feminist magazine. We have Trouble and Strife. We've got a really good collection of lesbian and queer publications as well, such as Sappho, Avina 3, The Ladder. They're housed downstairs in the Lesbian Archive. Uh, we also are still collecting. We've, we've um, got pretty full archives, but we're still looking to fill in the gaps. And we're also looking to respond to more topical events. So we do um, rapid response interventions where we do call outs for material to sort of more recent campaigns. So for example, we've collected some pussy hats, such as this one here. Um, this was the response to Donald Trump's infamous comments about grabbing women by the pussy. So the pussy hats are these pig hats that were knitted and worn by, I think there were millions of women worldwide who joined in the marches initially in January 2017 to create a sea of pink. So that was a real rebellious moment against the current president of the USA. We also collected um, material from the repeal of the Eighth Ireland Amendment last year, so looking to change the abortion laws. And of course, we're still collecting material for the, the Roller Derby collection. We've got call outs to fill in gaps um, for material that we don't have, and, and Roller Derby is continuing all the time, it's growing, so we're always making sure that we've got the, the gaps covered and that we're, we're adding to our collections. Yeah, I'd say that roller derby is rebellious in a lot of ways. I think like most women that start roller derby will probably tell you that it's changed the way they feel about themselves and how they feel in their body and like what they value about their bodies. But roller derby is so rebellious in that way when the media and like companies are trying to sell you the idea that you should want to look and feel one way and roller derby is telling you that actually you can feel amazing in your body without changing anything about it. I have been uh, one of my bosses, so like I say, I just became a consultant in August and when I was asking one of my old bosses for a reference, he said, how much is it worth me not to mention that time that you knocked somebody over and nearly broke their leg? And I was like, I'll give you a tenner if you don't mention that in my reference. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kerry. I'm a volunteer here at Glasgow Women's Library working in the National Museum of Roller Derby Collection and I have just completed my master's at university. Kerry has been working closely with the Roller Derby Collection, archiving, dating, creating displays. Over time, she's fallen in love with the DIY nature of the sport. Yeah, I didn't fully get into it until I started here on my placement. And then it's just, it piqued my interest. Uh, while I was here, I really enjoyed all like the puns and like the graphics and things that they all use. I love a good pun. So I, as soon as I saw that, I was just like, oh, that's a brilliant one. Oh, that's a brilliant one. <laughs> so this is a drawer that I've been putting together to be on a permanent display. 
within the Glasgow Women's Library. It's going to be like a four-drawer rotation of different kind of themes within roller derby. So this first drawer that we're looking at here is kind of like a general overview of a lot of the different themes just to conceptualise everything. So you've got like in 2015 they won the British Champ uh, Glasgow GRD won the British Championships and got first place. You've got some examples of the different Scottish teams. And then over here you got examples of like the LGBTQ plus Pride. So you got the Vagine regime and Pride of the North, which is two different LGBTQ teams. And then here you got an example of a nice, nice pun, Hadrian's Brawl instead of Wall. So yeah, I had to put that in. <laughs> and then you've also got the whole, you know, risk factor of the sport. It is like a dangerous sport. So you've got like loads of different protection kind of uh, gear. You've got like helmets and wrist guards knee guards and uh, elbow pads and stuff as well. So that'll be coming up soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think anybody who describes any sport as unladylike needs to just be ignored and allowed to sit in a room on their own and <laughs> think about what they've said. I mean, I it's a contact sport on roller skates. There's not a lot of learning how to like make a bouquet and uh, drink tea from China cups and things like that. But I think the idea that women should be a certain way is one that we've rightly sort of, as a society, I would say, thrown to one side, but particularly in roller derby. And if somebody in roller derby wanted to go and learn how to, you know, weave a basket or something like that, I'm sure we probably have somebody who weaves a basket on the team. <laughs> um, but I think that's a ridiculous criticism. <laughs> At first glance, the National Museum of Roller Derby Collection could be mistaken for a lost property at a school gym, though perhaps with a little more fancy dress. Still, you can't help but wonder what the point of it all is, who they're hoping to inspire. Jenny had a nice take on it. I hope when people come and see the Roller Derby Collection in the library, they'll be inspired either if they are a player themselves to see that they are being represented. I think it's really important for women to feel that they have a place in our museums and our libraries and that they're not just for a particular type of person who's been represented in the past, but actually there's a place for everybody. So I think that's really important. And also hopefully they'll maybe inspire people to try something they haven't done before. We had an open archive here a few months ago and we brought out our roller derby material for people to, to see, um, things that are normally kept in boxes. And we had a young girl came in and she was, she'd been thinking about having a shot of roller derby and she met a couple of players on the day and she was being really encouraged to take part. So. Yeah, I think from whether it's to participate in the sport itself or just as an audience member and feel the, the sort of sisterhood that that environment opens up to you or to feel represented, I think the collection can be used in lots of different ways. I think being part of a group of women who are naturally a bit rebellious might empower other young women to have the confidence to also become a little bit rebellious and yeah, just explore that streak a bit and um, if they've got something that they feel is important to rail against then to give them the confidence to do that. You heard the voices of Jenny Noble and Carrie Irving from Glasgow Women's Library, and Sarah Cochran, AKA Spark, and Ariane Laws. That's Puma Thurman from Glasgow Roller Derby. 
I think what's so cool about both Roller Derby and the Glasgow Women's Library is they're creating safe spaces for women to explore identity and connect with each other and be rebellious. In our final piece today, we're continuing with the thread of rebellious DIY spirit. Over the last 15 years or so, a grassroots book publishing phenomenon has been spreading across Latin America. And a few weeks ago, some of the movement's key exponents were in town and at the British Library to show us how it's done. Let's enter the world of Cartonera Books. É aí que a gente se considera artista, que a pessoa acha que é feio, horrível, a gente transforma em belo, maravilhoso. That's kind of what we think art and the role of the artist is. To take something horrible and turn it into something beautiful. And that's what we do in our work. We take something which people think is trash and we turn it into something beautiful. Good, they've been stamped. They're being catalogued at the moment, but I just want to say I think this goes down as a special moment. A group of book publishers, visiting from Mexico and Brazil, are in an office room at the British Library. So that's you. Trying to be very subtle. Don't try to change them. They're witnessing their work entering the British Library collection. It is very exciting for us. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, actually, I cried. <laughs> it was too much for us. Stamped and catalogued and ready to be called up. Met by the readers of the future. As objects, they have that aura about them. So few things are that individual and tactile anymore. <laughs> Dr. Elizabeth Cooper is a curator of the British Library's Latin American and Caribbean collections. Within our collecting of contemporary publishing, we made a conscious effort to start rethinking what contemporary publishing meant. Um, it's not just contemporary academic books. It's not just uh, newspapers. It's not just periodicals. It's also this kind of work, the cartoneras, from the grassroots on the ground, that allows us to understand, listen to, think about life, meaning, poetry from a different perspective in Latin America. The Cartonera publishing phenomenon began in Argentina during the economic crisis at the start of the century. It was almost a complete meltdown of the economy. Workers took over factories that had been shut down and started co-ops. Uh, people started bartering, not using money, taking to the streets out of necessity, inventing all kinds of ways to continue to survive and live. And one way was that people would collect cardboard. The cartoneros was the name that they gave people who were on the streets collecting cardboard to either resell or reuse somehow. Cartonera was kind of a play on that, that they were a publisher that was doing a similar type of work as the cartoneros. In 2003, the first collective, Eloisa Cartonera, was founded in Buenos Aires. They bought cardboard from the waste pickers, the cartoneros, for a good price. 
the Cartonera Publishing House used some of that cardboard to create these kind of artist books. So they would paint the covers, and then they got very well-known poets and writers to agree to allow for the republishing of their works, even though it was in copyright. Cuba, Paraguay, Brazil, Mexico. It spread as a format across Latin America. New writing in classic literature, shared and distributed in the same way, affordably. My name is Andrea. I was born in São Paulo, the state capital. I've been involved in recycling since I was a kid. My grandfather was a waste picker. My father was a waste picker. So how could I not be a waste picker as well? It was through my father that I heard about the cooperative being formed. So I started working with my father at the cooperative. With two children to raise, life wasn't easy. That's Andrea from the Dulcinea Catadora Publishing Collective, formed in Sao Paulo in 2007. It's helped people working as waste pickers like Andrea to express their stories through creative writing, to earn money, and to encounter new ideas in literature. Lucia Rosa is the founder of the collective. The industrial cardboard that we're working with, it comes from a city and then comes into the recycling quarter. Then it goes out of the recycling and in the form of a book and back to society. We see that that process can create bridges. It can create dialogues. The books they produce are pretty amazing and unusual. Oh, they're beautiful. Each one with its own unique cardboard cover. They're all super colorful. I love how different the formats can be. Whoa, okay, this one opens up almost like a flower. This is my first encounter with Catanera Publishing. The books are arranged on a wall weighed down by rocks in the British Library's Story Garden, a community garden behind the main building at St. Pancras, created in partnership with Global Generation and Stanhope on a beautiful afternoon at the end of summer. The event was presented as part of London's first ever Catanera Festival with workshops exploring currents of arts-based activism. Cartonera is all about bringing together people in some of the most unlikely of spaces. In between the planters and the small trees, a crowd has gathered around tables, speaking Spanish, English, and Portuguese. There's a range of ages. We're all here to learn how to make a book. So hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the first London Cartonera Book Festival. First we are going to buy this, uh-huh. and then afterwards we are going to paint the compost. Okay. Great, let's do it. Two pieces of cardboard. Two pieces of cardboard, yeah. Carton, paper. This week we'll be celebrating the inspirational work of Cartonera publishers. Of all the different methods, some of them like use glue, some of them use stitching. This idea of reinvention, of using daily struggles, using strife, to create beauty, to create poetry. Okay, that's some green. I think green's right. I have zero artistic ability. I'm Everybody has. And it's like singing in the shower. Who should tell you if it's right or wrong? Oh, that's, that's Block purple with a zigzag of cardboard going through the middle and then a block of paint. Yellow. It's my favorite color. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. I know that, you know, that's adults nice. don't typically have a favorite color, but... 
I've bound my book and I've stitched it and I've painted the cover and now I'm going to learn a little bit about what it says inside. What is the name of the book? Buritidão. Buriti é uma árvore típica do cerrado que dá num lugar que se chama vereda. Onde você vê vereda, você vê água. So, Buriti is a type of tree very specific to the Brazilian savanna. Um, it exists in these spaces that are characterized by veredas. And when you see a vereda, you know that there's water there. These texts are actually written by the women working in the Hiacho dos Ventos community, this quilombola community, a community set up by people that escaped from the institution of slavery. Nós tentamos dar voz a pessoas que estão à margem e bem distantes dos grandes. We give voice to these marginalized narratives. Narratives and stories that exist at a distance from the big city. Cata poesia, que é a ideia de catar histórias, né? Como se cata o papelão, se catar histórias, memórias. Cata poesia, the name of our editorial collective, comes from this Portuguese verb catar, and catar means to kind of sort of pick and collect things, with a connotation of picking and collecting from the floor somehow. So the idea of catapoesia is the idea of going round and picking and collecting these stories and poetries. So it's all saying that the women from the Quilombola community, Riacho dos Ventos, they're present right now because this community, Riacho dos Ventos, Vento means wind, and it's very well known for being a very windy place. So like, they're kind of right here with us present now. So we're all present right now, right here, and uh, they would really like to thank you for being present. La vida del preso comienza con una calumnia por aquel que empuña la espada con la mano. In Mexico, the Viento Cautanero publisher has recently published a collection of poems and stories by women from Puente Grande prison. This is Israel, the editor of the collection reading from it at the festival in London. And guests from the workshop he ran were also able to read the words of the women prisoners. And this is perhaps the most important thing about the Cartanera process. It's about getting together in the same place with a common aim, especially in parts of Mexico where narco-crime and cartel violence are on the rise. Israel says, this is why we work with communities, to reclaim public spaces, we hold workshops in them so people can leave their houses without fear and get involved in artistic activities in places once dominated by violence. I'll give the last words to the festival organizers and Cautanera researchers, Dr. Alexander Flynn and Dr. Lucy Bell. Increasingly, I'm thinking of literary listening rather than literary criticism. I'm not going to treat their texts as objects to be critiqued and deconstructed and unraveled, but as ways and paths for me to think differently about the world. So I think literary listening is something that both takes place within these workshops uh, when we're making these books together and then hopefully after the workshops when people take their books away and contemplate on the products that they've made and the text inside them. 
Cataneda puts forward a different kind of proposition. It is at heart a rebellious proposition. It's democratizing access to literature, but it's also democratizing what can be considered literature. You know, like what kind of stories can be told and also in what languages. Some of the Catanera publishers publish in Nahuatl or in Guarani, languages which have been systematically erased from Latin America. The London Catanera Book Festival was a collaborative project between Senate House Library, the University of Surrey, and the University of Durham together with five Cartanera publishing collectives from Mexico and Brazil. And the model is also being trialed in the UK. Recently, Lucy Bell has even led workshops in Nottingham Prison. You can find out more about the Cartanera phenomenon and the British Library's own Cartanera collection by checking out the Americas blog on the British Library website. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Remember, the British Library, like many libraries around the world, is free and is open to everyone. We're based at St. Pancras in London and Boston Spa in Yorkshire, and at bl.uk, where you can explore our collection from wherever you are. Anything But Silent is a PixiU production. We'll be back in two weeks with our accompanying mini-series, Joining the Library, when punk artist Billy Childish will be sharing a book that's shaped his work. That interview took place up a ladder, so I look forward to hearing that. But until then, from me, Cleo Laskarin, thanks for listening.